Welcome back to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. I'm your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist and advocate of building deep community. Today, I'm joined by Alyssa Wright, who is an absolute powerhouse in the world of community-based consulting and fundraising. Having spent time as a human rights activist in Eastern Europe and Africa, Alyssa brings over a decade of experience in international philanthropy to Wright Collective. She is a sought-after speaker on philanthropy and fund development, as well as a regular contributor to Forbes Women, Global Giving, and Network for Good. In our conversation, we talk about community-based consulting and fundraising and how to ask the questions that others may overlook and to really engage with communities in need. This is one you won't want to miss. I am so excited to have Alyssa Wright here today, my very good friend and colleague and fellow nonprofit consultant here on the Rise and Rouse podcast today. Alyssa, I'm so, so, so excited for this conversation. Me too. So Alyssa, having spent time as a human rights activist in Eastern Europe and Africa, she brings over a decade of experience in international philanthropy to Wright Collective. With a background in community organizing and the arts, Alyssa leads the collective with skill, creativity, and passion. As an accomplished facilitator, consultant, and coach, she builds new revenue streams, shifts cultural perspectives, and inspires people to believe that change is possible no matter what. Um, I would love for you to just give a little bit more about, you know, your background and everything, but it, that gives a pretty good sense of who you are. I might have actually yeah. written some of that intro, that bio for you years ago now. <laughs> I am sure you played a huge role in a lot of the ways that I think about this work and think about myself as a change maker. Mm. So I'm super pumped to be here, Erin, today and to be a part um, part of the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I mean, what can I add? Um, so I uh, grew up working class poor in rural Massachusetts. And in the way that many kids run away to sort of join the circus or something, I ran away and joined an international theater company. <laughs> and then, um, and that experience um, led me to live and work in Serbia for a while and got me really interested in human rights work. And um, turned out that um, I was really good at fundraising for those organizations when I came back to the United States. So my background is really in living the work and telling the stories um, of those who are the the leaders most proximate to um, to many of the issues that communities across the globe are facing. And my work and my life, my whole life, has been framed around um, this deep belief that we all have the ability to mobilize resources and to get resources into the hands of communities. Um, and it's and and there is enough out there for us to go after. So my hope today, like as we have a conversation, why I was also really excited is to kind of inspire and motivate people to to realize that those resources are out there and to know that often it's that we're just not asking for mm-hmm. them. And so my all my work has stemmed from this place of like, I just ask the questions that a lot of people are not asking when I'm in certain communities and sitting at certain tables. Mm, I love that. You're doing such amazing work across the globe, which I think is so so interesting because so much of my work is focused more locally. Like, but you've you've worked everywhere, really and truly. Like, you've your career has ex- has spanned a long time at this point. Like, even though you're young, but you've also like been so many different places. And what's it like to work internationally? I think that I was really lucky early on in my career. So I had two kind of things that happened. One early on in my career, um, what happened was I got to work with another international consulting firm where I sort of walked into a lot of projects that were happening all over the world. And the second was that I, I fell in love with a sailor who went on six month deployments. <laughs> and so every time he was gone for six months, I was like, well, you're out gone for six months. Like I'm going to take six months and travel and work. So yeah, I always feel really lucky that I've been able to work internationally. And again, yeah, straight out of college, 21 years old, 22 years old was able to um, partner with and be a part of all of these really incredible projects. What is it like to work internationally? Um, I feel like sometimes my colleagues joke because there's a part of my brain that kind of understands the political and cultural dynamics of so many different countries all the time. I'm like, oh, what's the political landscape in Kenya? When's their next election? Oh, and when is it our election? And when is the next election in Maine? Like in my own home <laughs> state? Like, so I'm always kind of um, holding the political and social and cultural dynamics of a lot of different places and a lot of diverse relationships. And so, yeah, so I think it's really exciting um, and it's a great opportunity to be immersed in so many different cultures. And I feel grateful to be able to, through the lens of philanthropy and uh, social impact, have been able to 
just like explore so many different cross-cultural partnerships and relationships and understand what that really means to like build trust across oceans and also build trust with somebody who lives up the street. You know, there are a lot of similarities and then there are really profound differences. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is an interesting time to be working globally across many different cultures and situations. Yeah. And I feel like you're somebody who like juggles it all with a lot of alacrity and you make it look easy in a lot of ways too. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I came, that's, that's very kind of you to say, Erin. And, you know, I came into this field as a bit of, a, um, I don't know. I just, I, I love people. Yeah. Like I just, I really, I don't even know sometimes how to distill it. Like I just believe so strongly in the innate goodness of human beings and I love mm. them. Like I love getting to know people. And I, I, I remember a very intentional time. I think it was my first trip to Kenya. I like got off the plane and there was like all these people in the airport and there was a driver coming to pick me up. And I was with a very diverse group of colleagues that came from all over the world to like go to this convening. And I just remember standing outside the airport and like the hot Kenyan sun on my face for the first time. And I just looked around. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to get to know everyone. Mm. Like I was so like energized by the idea of like new faces and new understanding Um and so that's always been very energizing to me and I appreciate it. And I feel like I've got, I don't know, maybe hopefully knock on wood, a hundred and some change years on this planet <laughs> <laughs> to live and to like meet as many people as possible and to understand and to, to, to love them. So that sounds very, very meta or very spiritual on a certain level, but that's the way that I've always kind of followed my, my work. Mm, I remember like, you might've said, I think it was maybe you who had said this to me at one point that like when you're thinking about like extrovertedness that you're like, like a 10 and then I'm like a six or so. <laughs> and then our other colleagues. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Yeah. Which is no, but it's so funny to me because everybody in my life is like, oh, Erin, you're such an extrovert. But I'm like, oh, Alyssa puts me to shame. Like just really <laughs> and truly. <laughs> I know. I know. That's funny. Oh, I appreciate that's funny. Yeah, I know. It's hard. It's hard being I mean, the pandemic like was so difficult yeah. for me. Like people were like, we have Zoom exhaustion. And I was like, more Zoom, yeah. more faces. <laughs> More breakout groups. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I have my moments where I definitely like have to put that in check. But um, but yeah, I just I love people. I thrive in community. And again, like I think another big through line of my work as a community organizer and now a funder organizer is that I love curating community in a way where you can have conversations that like, you know, rock your heart and soul in the right direction and get your imagination on mm -hmm. fire and then hopefully get you to realize that you have more. Um, than less to really put into action for the world that you want to see. Yeah, that is like one of the things that I love about you is just that sheer amount of like creativity and that kind of activating of folks in your spaces. Like it's it's a gift that you have. And also, I think just speaks to like, just who you are as a person too. I, I love, I love being able to see you put all of that into action. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. It, it It's, um yeah, I feel I feel like I'm very aware of my gifts and skills and my gaps mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my flaws. And I've taken good inventory and I continue to take inventory and just try to figure out who I'm going to keep shape shifting into to serve these times. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about just some of the some of the actual work that you're doing. And I know you've got yeah. this like big scope of work and that you're doing around birth justice fundraising capital campaigns and things like that. And so I, I would love to hear you just talk a little bit more about what it's like to do that work because yeah. you're you're a little ways into that at this point, at least a year plus into that work right now. And no signs of stopping yeah. at this point too. No, I mean, um, I mean it's kind of propelled by two things. So so one is I've had two of my own birth experiences in the last mm. four and a half years. Um, and so I was actually in the system, in the medical system in a certain way that just made me see and realize a lot of things. And then the second is that I made a very intentional um, part of the practice, the right collective, the, the community-based consulting agency that I run. Um, I had a lot of intentionality when we first kind of started designing that, that I wanted to specifically give access to resources and access to communities of color that had tr never traditionally had access to those resources. And I think that sometimes this is where fundraisers think that, you know, they're in a job. <laughs> I'm a development director and I have to write letters and I have to throw events and I have to meet with people and fulfill grants and make sure that this one organization gets this amount of money in their budget. I think that's a very transactional way of seeing just how much power you have when you've been fundraising for a while. And I think when I started the agency, I had this 
sort of awakening for myself of like, oh my gosh, my social network, like the people that I know, the communities I have access to, the knowledge I have from being able to attend things that cost like so much money for a ticket. Like I just felt so called to bring that to the communities that I knew needed it the most and probably would never get access to it or would really struggle to. So we made, we were intentional from the beginning and being really involved in making sure that BIPOC communities, that Black, Indigenous, people of color communities that uh, had leaders within them that had small emerging organizations and things like that um, were going to be in our client portfolio. And those were the causes and the organizations we wanted to steward the most. And then there was this really interesting pivot for me where I was fundraising a lot and realizing in the donor conversations that while they wanted to support leadership, while they wanted their programs to keep running, there wasn't really a conversation about helping these communities build wealth Mm. and build power. And so I realized that like, oh, that's great. Like you're helping the black woman leading a youth program to continue to keep the lights on and help X number of, you know, black kids in their program. But you're not actually helping her and the organization sustain themselves into the future. And also for her to be nested in a community where people were starting to build and accrue community wealth. So I got really excited. This is going to sound so silly, but I got really excited when um, a group of uh, public health leaders and and black midwives and doulas in the greater Boston area approached Right Collective about starting to consult and help them raise money to own and operate their own birth center. And uh, the interesting thing about the landscape of birth centers is most of them are opened by white, wealthy midwives who are able to you know, get certain types of loans or access to certain capital, mortgage their home, mm-hmm. um, you know, these types of activities. And so it is very rare. I think um, I forget the exact number, but there's something like less than 30 right now uh, birth centers throughout the country that are owned and operated by black and indigenous midwives. Mm. And I find that fascinating, too, because we're in such a maternal health crisis. You know, I myself had two profound complications with both my birth stories, with the second where I almost died from a postpartum hemorrhage. Oh. And a lot of it was because of what I was pipelined to through the existing healthcare system. And so there are these birth stories from birthing people all across the country. They are obviously much worse for folks of color, for birthing people of color. And what we find is that the solution is midwifery care, culturally appropriate midwifery care and community, and yet it is profoundly under-resourced. And those midwives are expected to do everything in addition to catching the babies, operations, fundraising, finance. And many times they're looped into those situations because of uh, leasing or renting property and not owning their own. Mm. So we started four years ago with a project in Boston. We now consult with the national network and fund called Birth Center Equity. And we're supporting um, with capital campaign projects. Uh, we're supporting about six birth centers right now, specifically in their geographies. And outside of that, we're consulting on the convenings that happen around about 60 or 65 that are either open and operating or trying to get the capital to own and op- to open and operate. And I'm really thrilled to say that you know we started that effort three years ago, and Detroit and Boston mm-hmm. are the two projects that are literally about to open in the next six to 12 months because they've raised upwards of about $4 million um, to do that work. It just gave me goosebumps hearing you say that. Like, it's just... <laughs> It's pretty amazing. It, it really is amazing. And I, I remember just when I was doing a project when I was in grad school at one point where I found an article or I was in a, I can't remember, or maybe I was in a group of folks, but the average, like, say, black woman has like 30, can take, like, takes on like $30,000 worth of debt to open a business. Whereas like the average yeah. white man, it's like upwards of a million. And just like thinking about like the disparities in like access to funds for folks and how that, of course, like if you if you only are able to like capitalize like $30,000 or whatever for it to get stuff up and running, it's a very, very different yep. kind of a situation than if you're able mm-hmm. to like go and access millions. So the fact that you're doing this kind of work is like to speaking to like what your your goal is, when you were starting to step into it, like helping people actually build community wealth in these ways and to be open, be able to like open spaces that really truly serve them, their community, people that look like them versus just kind of like replicating the same old stuff and, and not being able to do it with the same kinds of resources to actually allow them to thrive. I think that's, it's just so incredibly impactful. Well, you know, obviously, like I'm not doing it. We're all doing it in community. Yeah. I have amazing. I have, there's so many like amazing people that I get to work with, and um, 
I think that's the other piece of it too, Erin, that you're naming that is just like also so incredibly important is that I think sometimes folks that, um, you know, and again, it, you know, whatever your identity is, as you're, as you're listening to this podcast today, and as you're thinking about your role in these types of movements, like there are so many of us that have had access to financial um, capacity, but necessarily didn't get access to financial tools and education. Mm -hmm. So that's another piece too. Like I have seen this interesting thing in not only this work, but even other projects, like we're also helping with some community-based care models around gender affirming health and helping mm. trans folks open their own clinics, create their own ecosystem. Yeah. And, and, and the abortion network, the, the abortion funds, um, and helping them kind of put more of a foothold in the community with physical assets that they own and can leverage. And, and I think what's interesting is that, um, there are a lot of donors who, uh, it's a transaction, right. And it feels good to just send someone 50 K or a hundred K and say, go get them. <laughs> And then there's the other part of it where it's like, yes, send them that. But also like folks need access to like to become fluent in the financial ecosystem. Yeah. Like you can't just say to someone like, here's money. You know, we have a client that benefited from the Mackenzie Scott yield giving mm -hmm. um, kind of boom of resources. This is uh, Jeff Bezos's um, ex-wife uh, who is now moving all this money throughout many organizations in a very trust-based and beautiful way. But they benefited from some of that money. And the organization was like, um, we've never had a donation of more than 10K and now we got 2 million. How do we, what do we do with this? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's the other piece of it too, is like organizations historically, you know, I see this a lot, even when people are funding black leadership, it's like, you have to give them more than money as well. Like you have to really be all in um, and make sure people have access to the knowledge and the networks to sustain the capital that you, you give to them. Mm. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. So much of like what you're doing, there's like tremendous successes all the time mm -hmm. and you're seeing so much amazing, you know, energy, mo you're building so much momentum. What are some of the setbacks that you've seen in this work? Like where have you had challenges? Is that like, do I have three hours? To talk <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny, Aaron, I went into this work. I think, you know, this mm -hmm. about me, like being like a total eternal optimist, like I'm such a positive yeah. person. And I think the thing that's changed, and maybe it's just also I'm aging, like as I'm becoming an elder millennial now to my late 30s. Geriatric. Um, I'm a geriatric millennial. So. Oh, yeah. that is a, wow. Horrifying. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that language, patriarchy. Great job. Um, so <laughs> women, are, we're never the right no, age. No, we are right? never it's the right something. age. Nope. <laughs> never, ever. So I think it's interesting because I went into this work like being very positive, you know, like I really, I, and I very much still teach a lot about abundance and how important that is. But I think I've also gone to a place where um, I think that you need to be very, it, there's a certain level of resiliency and pragmatism that like is also required in the work. And so you can have a big goal, but you also have to be comfortable with the fact that like you are building a world in an existing system that is going to have you slide downhill very frequently. And so for me, like, I think people hear about our projects and they go, oh my gosh, like you raised 4 million, they bought the land, they got the staff. Well, yeah, but like with every election season, like the legislation could change, you know? And so I think the biggest thing for me is just like, you know, reminding people that when you're building something new at every point, like you're going to slide back. And that's the piece for me that I think um, my colleague, Leslie Welch, who's one of the co-founders of Birth Center Equity, one of the things that Leslie says often, and we've even said in donor meetings is like, we're doing this no matter what. And this is like, we're devoting our lives to solving these problems. And so, uh, you know, you can come with us or, you know, we're still going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like It's sort of like, you can join and be a part of it and know that we're going to like put all of ourselves into whatever the circumstances are to keep it going. But like, you know, that's our invitation to you. And I actually think that's a really, you know, a really important piece when folks are not just fundraising, but thinking about any sort of change work is like, you have to have a certain level of resiliency and, and, and be willing to understand that you're going to, you're going to, you're, I don't want to call it failure, but like the experiment's going to pivot, mm. right? Like, <laughs> you know, like the experiment's going to go in a different direction. You're going to be like, oh, we put those three chemicals together and didn't know it would do that. <laughs> so next time, um, <laughs> but I definitely think that's very, I think that's very true. I think the other thing, um, just to give a really tangible, like, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to say like failure, 
but like another really tangible um, piece that I think is like something to something to always be thinking about when you're doing this work is this idea of, and we've seen this a lot with all of our projects, but just this idea of like the, the evolution of relationships within whatever your particular mission area is. There are folks that started with us at some of these projects that when they got to a certain stage, they were no longer the right relationships. Mm. You know, I always tell folks that like relationships come and go away. And I think a lot of times organizations hold on so tightly to the people that were part of certain moments of their history or their founding moment or whatever, that they aren't okay with letting them go. And I think this is why I love the birth justice ecosystem, because they're just in such right relationship to what they're doing. Every time that we've had a funder say, you know, I'm, you know, I've given all I can to this space and it's time for me to, you know, sunset or whatever they're doing within a couple of weeks, a new relationship shows up. But if we kept going back to them and we were like, no, you can't leave us. You have to stay on the board. You know, we really want to, you know, get another grant from you. What do we do to get it? I just feel like you just have to be in such a flow with being okay with who's going to step in. And and I think that's the biggest mistake I've made is sometimes I hold on too much because I'm like, no, you've been here since the beginning, Mm -hmm. like stay with us and keep supporting us. And, you know, I have to drink the abundance Kool-Aid and remind myself (laughs) that there's how many millions of people in the world and who else could step in to support and help. But it is, it's hard to let, let go. I mean, change of any sort. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of folks who are listening. Like, change is so freaking hard. It's scary. We, you can't predict the future. And so there has to be like an element of trust in the, in the universe, you know what I mean? Almost in like, to get like woo woo, you know, but really and truly like there has to be. And I think for you having done this work for so long too, you've, you've seen that come to fruition probably more Mm -hmm. times than you can count where it's like, you've been able to hold that hope and trust that something will come through and it does. Or if it doesn't, that that door closes and something else better is along coming along the way. Yeah. And I think one of the things I think I learned even from, you know, from our work mm-hmm. together, because I know we both share the same value is like the movements that we're in, we will be in for our lifetime. Yeah. And that's the other part of it, too, is I while I love certain organizations and while I love certain leaders and all of that, like I'm very clear that like I have. I have a certain group of people and I have certain issues that I care about, like that I'm, I'm movements that I'm a part of that I don't care if they're going to be 35 formal 501c3s I cut a check to in 10 years, or they're going to morph into like all being one institute that I, you know, like, I just feel like we hold on to these constructs sometimes Mm -hmm. and we don't actually get in a flow, you know, where we're okay with accepting the messiness because that's where, again, like, I feel like people hold a lot of change making efforts back because they just like they want so much control over what the structures are and and that's you know that's undoing all of the all of that inside of ourselves from the 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 dominant you know system like it's just we want the structure and it's like no well maybe that doesn't serve right now what else could it become and and that's scary that freaks us all out <laughs> yeah 100 percent. it's i mean we're all scared we're all scared i think that like you know my partner will oftentimes tell me how I rely so very, very heavily on like that kind of structure for myself. You know what I mean? Because I take comfort in it. You know what I mean? Like I have to create that structure and like it takes him purposely like prying me away from it at times (laughs) to to be like, okay, nope, this is how you do that. And and how you start to create those kinds of changes. It makes me like what you're just saying makes me think about like this um, something that I was asked when I was in grad school was this to whom do you want to be held accountable or like, mm. or like, to what communities do you want to be accountable to? You know, I'm so interested to hear you talk a little bit about that. The immediate thing that comes into mind, which I mean, again, is totally not articulated, but the immediate thing that comes into mind right now is like, I just see like all the babies in the cribs across mm. the country and like that were like just born into these times. And I just, I mean, that's where my immediate like gut reaction goes is like, I want to be accountable to the youth. Yeah. Like, I want to be the 60-year-old woman retiring on her porch in Vermont, tie-dyeing her clothes and growing her vegetable garden, because that's my plan, Mm -hmm. who, like, you know, turns around and looks at everybody under 25 and goes, did I get it right? Mm. Like, did I get it right? You know? And I think that, I think that for me is so big also personally, because I, it's so funny, Erin, I'm sure you feel this way too, like, because we're still so very close to that time in our lives, but all of the thoughts that I had between 15 and 25 in particular Mm. that weren't formalized yet, but just were these gut instincts, they're now like the top talking points 
all throughout everything in media, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> I'm like, what's happening to our planet? Why aren't people talking about like race di- and class dynamics? Mm-hmm. Like, why are women still being treated this way? And why, is, you know, why is violence okay in like community? Like, all these things that I was like, why aren't we talking about them or what those kind of underpinnings were? I wish that someone had turned to me and said, what do you think? And what's the, what could be a solution? So I want to be accountable to the youth. Um, I actually have a mentor right now who's 23 and she calls me in a lot and, um, and calls me out. <laughs> um, she also yells at me and tells me I'm a bad millennial when I can't figure out technology, <laughs> um, which I very much appreciate. She's like, you're sad that you're just figuring out Asana. I'm like, I know. Oh, Asana is um, so great. It is. So it's great. so great. So, but I, but also like, <laughs> yeah, you know. I know, so, um, yeah, I will never be on TikTok and she can't get me there, but, um. But I definitely think that, yeah, I think I think a lot about the youth and, and I think a lot about, you know, in my own house, you know, for lack of a better, I'm, I, I think a lot of times about all the people that say to me like, I'm doing this work for my children's future and my grandchildren's future. And I totally honor that. And that is a driver for me. But I'm also doing it because I want them to look at me and say, like, mom, you played the right game to create the world for me, for everybody. You weren't mm-hmm. just focused on what we needed. And maybe that's sometimes why also I go global because, you know, there's only so much we can all do a couple of feet from our house or in our own homes around things like the climate crisis. Like we can't go, we can't go yell at the fossil fuel companies like, and, and go to the world bank and the UN and do whatever. Like we do have to be more aware of what's happening as a full global human family. And so I try to bring that perspective into the house, but like, if I'm going to peace out for a couple of weeks to go support organizing of you know, youth in Pakistan that are trying to get enough money to go and, you know, talk about how the fossil fuel industry is causing floods in their country mm. and they can't, you know, like, I just feel like it, it isn't always, you know, just me putting on solar panels and teaching my kids that it's important to, you know, grow your own vegetables. Those things are important, but I also just feel like a lot of responsibility to sometimes leave my own nuclear family to go be a part of other things. And I think my partner feels the same way too. Like he and I have been talking a lot lately about like, we have to think about where we go out to meet the issues where they're at, mm-hmm. as well as what we bring back into our house. Oh, fuck. That's so good. Like, it's so good to think about it that way. Yeah. And then have everybody shame you around you and tell you you're a bad mom because you're gone for nine days oh, in a my row. Lord. I'm Whatever. like, they're, they're, <laughs> they're just jealous. Piper, my oldest daughter, actually, Erin, you'll mm-hmm. think this is funny. She did her Mother's Day thing and she said, what's your favorite thing to do with your mom? And she said, stay in a hotel and eat hotel food. <laughs> what a sweet... I'm bringing her with yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, there's so much around like just being like a working mom. Oh, oh it's hard. And the shame is real. The like shade from oh. other moms is real. And it's, I, I mean, I don't have to deal with that because I'm just a plant mom. Nobody's shaming me. But like, you know. <laughs> You're suck- well, they're yeah, they're probably a little bit mad at me because I'm not tending to them as much as I should. But you know, that's that's a different story. <laughs> but it's it's so real, and I think like you've been able to like build this amazing like agency that you have. You've been able to do such great work and be in great relationships with people. You are such a powerhouse. But it's it is so hard, I'm sure, to, sometimes to be able to like put that mom hat on. Yeah, there. De- I mean, there definitely is. And I, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I want to also, you know, one of the things that I think also to just like my evolution of mm-hmm. thought, because I don't, you know, if we're, if we're all doing the internal work, well, I think every couple of years, we have some aha moments. So we have to change mm-hmm. our own perspective mm-hmm. on things. But like, part of my like, I think aha moment, um, particularly after having children, but also just like living post pandemic, like, I feel like I've had some time since 2020 yeah. to like, really reflect on a lot of different things. Um, I do feel like who you choose to surround yourself with, like your everyday community, the people in your house that you see on your street, that you interact with where when you go out, you know, for friendly gatherings or whatever it might be. I think there's so much to putting the right people around you on a daily mm-hmm. and a weekly basis. Um, and I am very, very grateful to have a really good partner. Um, I don't want to say that he isn't on his own also like incredibly awesome, but like that was also a very intentional choice. Like, you know, I wanted to find someone like him. And so I feel grateful that like we have a really strong relationship. And I think, you know, I do, I sometimes see some other, um, some other folks that they just don't have partners that understand 
the bigness of who they want to be and, and who they can be. And they don't cultivate that in each other. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, my partner and I, William, like we've been very intentional that like we want to live like a big full life and we want to be two independent people in a community. And so I'm always grateful to him because it has been a big, it's been, and it's constant work. Um, but we both love being each other's allies and what we also say are each other's agitators. <laughs> like we're just, we are there to like, you know, um, and I also think like, just, you know, I I've said no, honestly, mm. and Aaron, I think, you know, this like with some of my personal and professional relationships, I say no a lot more now because I don't want certain people around me. Ooh, <laughs> like, yeah, I have just, I have just embraced that. Like, I don't care what the societal construct is that I have to keep you in my life. If you don't make me feel healthy and well and happy and champion me, like, why would I want to be around you in any capacity? Like I only have, again, my hundred and some change, knock on wood, um, years to have this human experience. And I want it to be as joyful as a one as possible. And I'm not going to keep people in my orbit who just continue to not make me feel that way. So I think that's been a big part of just like being able to see things grow. It's like I pulled a bunch of the weeds out of the garden and now the sun shines brighter. Mm, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. And so, you had already planted can flourish. You know what I mean? Like that's, right. that's the whole point of pulling weeds too. Like I'm so happy to hear that because I I remember, you know, just like pre-pandemic when we first started working together, you were just going so hard so fast all the time. There was a part of me that just I wanted not for you to slow down for, you know, any selfish reasons or anything like that. But I was just kind of like, do you have the space to be able to reflect? Do you have the space to be able – do yeah. you have the like a, opportunity to take that strategic – like look at everything and and really be intentional about where you wanted to grow. And yeah, I'm glad that that's happened. Yeah. And, and it's not perfect, but I think you, you know, you and, and many others have been a part of like yeah. reiterating how important that is. And I think the other part of it too, is like, I used to, again, it's how you see your, it's how you see what you value. Mm -hmm. Right. So in building um, a social impact business, mm -hmm. And, and again, learning a lot of this from you, like, I just feel like um, I I had a pivot moment where I was so, and I grew up working class poor. Yeah. So like my mentality was I have to take all the contracts yeah. that all have, that all pay me the most, um, regardless of the toxic founder, the unhealthy dynamics, the wanting me to be on the road 80% mm -hmm. of the year. Like I didn't factor in those things. I didn't value those things. I value that like I needed enough money to like, keep the business going. And I have to say, when you say no to the things that you feel like financially are sometimes going to float the boat and you say yes to the right relationships. I mean, I can't tell you like I am financially, physically, spiritually, emotionally well by the gift of being able to work with like all of these birth mm -hmm. center groups. Like I just love the folks that I get to work with. And I feel so blessed that I am still able to have a livelihood that is sustainable in partnership with them. But that was a big pivot point for me, Aaron. I think you were a big part of that too. Like I remember being like, this is our biggest contract. We can't <laughs> let it go. And then I was like, but wait a minute. Like I'm overworking myself yeah. and being underpaid and I'm miserable all the time and not being treated well. So yeah, I think, you know, I continue to have to remind myself every couple of months that like when you say no to things, the things that are supposed to come in, come into those gaps. You just have to be ready to let go. And it's not easy. You know, it's going to be constant life's work. Mm, I know. <laughs> I know. And that's, and it's, um, holding boundaries is I think like the hardest thing as I've become, as I've gotten older, I like learning about my own boundaries, yeah. holding them, acknowledging them, learning when I don't do a great job holding them. <laughs> Cause Same. yeah, it's, it's could be really, really challenging. I will say a book that really kind of transformed mm -hmm. my life. Um, or re really helps me actually out is, and I have it at home. Um, so it's a, a psychologist named Nedra Tawab. Yeah. And she wrote a book called Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Mm -hmm. And I literally, like it is on my office desk. I probably pick it up like once a week and just open to a random page and read it. And it recalibrates my nervous system around how I need to set boundaries to arrive in this work in a certain way. And I think too, like you and I are both facilitators. Yeah. When you're facilitating like very dynamic, intense conversations about social, economic, cultural impacts of, of, of changing systems. Like 
you have to sit in a lot of messiness mm -hmm. and confusion and conflict and you can't show up in that space and be like, oh my gosh, I got to get this email back to this person because right. they're going to be mad at me. Right. No, you can't have those nope. dynamics when you need to hold space as often as folks like you and yeah, I do. Yeah, being present and just being really laser focused on what's happening in those spaces is so hard and it takes so much energy. And like part of mm -hmm. for me is also like around holding boundaries around some of that is just like making sure that I'm not, that I'm like creating the space ahead of time to yep. arrive fully present and then like being able to like have the space afterwards to actually fully recover too oh yeah. my goodness being a facilitate we could talk about facilitation for days i love talking days, about facilitation days. next podcast i hope you do is just all like <sighs> with facilitators on the things they've learned i feel like you'd rock oh my that. goodness that would be so much fun i'll plug um just <laughs> as you say that though i'll plug my friend beth tenner who i think you know beth tenner yeah her, I love beth. her new podcast is is a lot of talking with facilitators and and her talking about being a facilitator she's just she's so powerful so we'll put make sure to put that in the show notes for folks too so that along with all of the amazing links to everything we've talked about and to your work but you know, part of, as you were just talking about, like making sure that you're working with the right people and saying no to things like mm -hmm. you are in so many different spaces where you're with folks because you're doing fundraising, you're helping um, either high net worth folks like understand where to spend their money, you know what I mean, where mm -hmm. to, or to trying to convince them or to like helping them to understand where they can have an impact. How is it to be like in those kinds of spaces, you know, with folks who you know I mean, and you you shared this with me before, like their very existence causes harm in the communities you care about. Like, yeah. what is it like to do that? Because there's got to be some cognitive dissonance, I imagine. Yeah. Um, for a starting point, I guess what I would share is that I try to see every human being that walks into my life as, in their full humanity. And I don't know your story. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what's influenced you. I can make a lot of assumptions, but until I have an opportunity to get to know you personally a little bit, I feel like I can't just look at someone and Im immediately make a judgment. I also, you know, which might be a little bit radical, um, believe in my own power that maybe in a couple conversations I could change someone's mindset or the way that they think mm -hmm. about something um, by them knowing me. And I think that there are a lot of people that don't believe that for themselves, that like you actually as an individual, like sharing your own stories and experience and asking the right questions might actually completely change how someone views the world. And we each have that power, but I think we don't think that's powerful, again, because of white supremacist, patriarchal, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, but I really do believe in that. And so I will entertain a conversation with anyone that I've never met before. And I think the reason for that is that I think it's important to understand where they're coming from, what their mindset and beliefs are, because part of undoing the system is also understanding like, you know, what do billionaires think and why do they think that they um, should not be taxed or or should not have to move their money around in a certain way? And why is wealth inequality okay to them? We have to understand these things while we also have these conversations with folks. And we also have to understand that I have talked to some folks, not billionaires, but, you know, folks with wealth that they have their own trauma narrative. And so they don't even, they can't, there are people who are wealthy who can't even get access to mental health care. Like, what wow. does that say? You know, so like, there's just so many things we don't know about people that I don't make a judgment. Like I wouldn't want anyone to make a judgment of me by like what's on a pa piece of paper about me or what's in mm -hmm. my bank account or whatnot. Um, I really do believe that you need to have an, at least an initial conversation and understanding. I mean, there probably is a list. Don't get me wrong. Maybe a dozen people that I will not name <laughs> that I would never talk to. But for the most part, I will entertain. So, you know, I have a lot of, um, and I think I shared this with you earlier, Erin, I have a lot of cross-class conversations mm. with folks. I myself am a middle-class person and um, grew up working class poor. And I have a lot of conversations with high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals because of my work. So what does it mean to go into a conversation with someone knowing that like 10% of the ecosystem that they're in because of their economic status owns like almost 80% mm -hmm. of the wealth in our entire country, right? So it's like you go into these conversations, you know these things. And I think for us, it's like, what are the levers you can push on by asking certain questions? And so, you know, I've been inspired over the years by folks that have said, you know what, like, I actually don't have access to the wealth. My father still makes all of the investment decisions mm -hmm. for the family money, or my husband does, or, um, you know, we're stuck with our money in these certain trusts, and we actually can't move it. Like, 
there's so many things in the system that you we have to understand. And so I'm grateful again for like folks that want to keep that conversation going, who want to stay on the journey to try to undo some of the harm that their, you know, their class innately brings to so many communities across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece is like I can tell in a very early on, very early on in a conversation, if this is someone like we said earlier, like clearing out that energy, mm-hmm. like if it's someone I don't want to work with. Yeah. You know, I've even had people before that I've been like, wow, you're really progressive in some of your values, but you're how you're approaching the work or how you're showing up in a community of like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of diverse mm-hmm. women, you know, is, is not appropriate. Like, you know, and so, you know, I always kind of factor in a lot of those different things, but, um, but to go back to your original question, I, I do think, um, one of the biggest things for me is I'm kind of a three strikes and you're out. <laughs> so I give people usually like three really meaningful conversations um, or three engagement points. And if at the end of that, I'm not feeling like it's a really good partnership that we could create, I will, you know, tell the organization or I will um, let the individual know, like, I don't think that you should be a client because we do yeah. philanthropic advising work. We're not a good match for you to be a client. Um, or I will say, I, I'll let the organization know that, you know, this individual could be really problematic if you decide to accept a check or a grant. Um, Mm. So, yeah. So I, you know, I I think that um, it is complex and we all have to do the best that we can in our little one-off situations. Yeah. And I think um, what you were talking about before in terms of kind of understanding those relationships and letting them go is really important in that, in that sense, because it's not, it doesn't make sense to try to continue to like, grind at trying to like convince somebody to come and see see whatever you're trying to convince them to see or to get them on board with whatever it's a lot of wasted effort totally yeah totally and it it brings up this question too just um I think I like the topic of this particular podcast that you've started to um because I do I do feel like like it it is that rousing that like Mm. agitator like you have to have something every day that wakes you up and activates Mm -hmm. you you know and I think that uh I think for me, it's always been the opportunity to have those conversations. I think some people are so conflict avoidant that they, you know, or they, or they don't even like the idea of like trying to talk across difference or across different experiences or expertise areas or whatever. And uh, again, like maybe it's just part of my like loving curiosity of human beings. How many can I meet in my hundred plus (laughs) years here? (laughs) But I'm just so curious and, you know, and I'm again, and I'm also not afraid at the end of it to say this isn't a match or this is a great match. Um, and I will say that, you know, I had a, just an anecdote, but I had a, um, an older white wealthy man that I used to work with in my twenties through a project. Um, I had him about a year ago, send me an email and he just wrote to me and he said, um, uh, he told me about a couple, like just a couple conversations that we had had about money and gender. Mm. And he told me that one of the things that he started doing was actually getting his wife and daughter more involved in the family finances. And because of our work with them, like one of the first things that he, or one of the things that he wasn't first things, but one of the things that he was playing with as an idea was like this idea of letting them know how much capital they actually had. His wife didn't even know how much money they had. Wow. (laughs) Right. And they'd been married for like 25 years. They had a 20 year old daughter, like all this stuff. And I remember saying to him, like, you should, you should find a way to let them know especially your wife, like she should know anyway, but you should find a way to talk to your daughter about this wealth. Because if both of you were hit, you know, abducted by aliens tomorrow, she would be the steward of something that she was not prepared for. And that's where I see next geners freeze around their inheritance. It's when they thought maybe they were going to get a million or two bucks in a trust, a trust. And then all of a sudden they're like, what, there was $25 million and $88 million in real estate. And did it, you know, so anyway, so he wrote me about a year ago and he said, not only do my wife and I know now co-lead our investment strategies and our philanthropy strategies, he said, we've also invited our daughter into family meetings and she's aware of all of the assets, although she does not steward them quite yet. And I just felt like that was like, again, this is a conversation almost 10 years ago that got started. It takes time. But that to me is better than writing any million dollar grant and getting that funding or throwing any fancy gala and selling out all the seats or, um, you know, whatever it might be, because it's behavior change on behalf of the 1%. And um, how amazing to think that some of that might be possible as we go through this generational wealth transfer moment. Um, Those one-offs, I think, could make a really different world for us as time goes on. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. 
the work you do now pays dividends years, you know, from like in advance. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it oftentimes because it's, this is bigger change work that you're doing. It doesn't happen all at once. It is like literally right. you have to have that stamina in order to be able to see it through. Right. And, and again, the trust that like the seeds you plant now, you'll be able to harvest later. Right. And no one's hiring me to change their minds. Yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. other, that's the other tricky part is it's like, it's like this, it's like the, oh, well, like, you know, we can come in and work with your family and facilitate four sessions around what you want your mission and vision to be for your mm-hmm. philanthropy. But you have to, as an advisor, when you have access to these networks, like, you have to ask certain questions yep. and you have to share your own experience in a way that's appropriate, you know? So while I always am mindful that I am hired to do a job with clients, it doesn't mean that I'm not afraid to put certain questions or research reports or um, opportunities on the table to try to help them think a little broader and more, uh, yeah, more, more courageously about who they are and, and who they can become again in these, in this era that we're all living in and trying to push yeah. through. So yeah, it's tricky. It's a fine line. Mm, I know. <laughs> it's like I think about Silicon Valley, the show, and oh yes, <laughs> billionaires are people too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right, right. It's like it's like, and it's the most complex thing. And I, you know, and there's a spectrum too. Like my colleagues and I talk all the time. Like there's many of us that like, you know, I know a certain. Like I said, I know the twelve yeah. people <laughs> that I'm like, no, no. <laughs> You know, and there's, you know, and then I, and then I also know like the people that, you know, like my colleagues of color should not go talk to yes. groups of white wealthy women about uh, how to do this work. Like that's my role. Like I will go build that bridge and listen to whatever, you know, and I, so you have to know what your role is to support as well um, based on your identity and your experience. And yeah, I think, um, I think I'm all, I mean, I'm always learning and I don't think that I'm perfect, but I definitely feel like the questioning piece is huge. Um, you know, like knowing the questions you should ask that haven't historically been asked and then, you know, listen for the answers and see what comes next. Mm. That makes you just a, a, it's like what makes you so masterful at what you do, you know, is that ability to kind of like sense and feel into that and, and to do that work with such calmness, like that you, you carry. Which is why I don't do that work because I would have our I'd have a real hard time being chill. <laughs> and we know you definitely have to know your role. You definitely have to know your role. You know, it's funny. Um, again, my partner says all the time. He's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, so at what age do you just get completely burned out and we like open up a cafe or a food yeah. truck? Like, because yeah. <laughs> I am at some point I am going to be like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna knit sweaters and sell them at the farm stand. Like, mm-hmm. I. I'm ready to go into some tangible, hands-on, creative thing and just peace out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's true. It's like this this work does weigh on you for sure. And just finding the ways to be able to like to sustain yourself through it is so hard. It's so, so hard. Totally. Yeah. And if you need to take a few months off and go knit some sweaters and shit, like do it. Like, <laughs> you know, it is coming. Yeah. It is probably I'll coming. do some art and you can knit sweaters and we'll we'll sell them at the farmer's market. I'm totally down with that. Like, I keep thinking to myself, like, maybe I do need to take a real summer sabbatical yeah. and, like, do some real hands-on, like, something. Yeah. It's, yeah. You need the spaciousness <laughs> to be able to think and to and to be able to, like, process and to be able to, like, chart the next steps for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, we've gone all over the place with all our conversations. I'm so – which I love. I love being able to do that. Is there anything else that you want to touch on before I move us to close? No, I, I mean, this was incredibly awesome. And thanks for letting me like also show up in my full humanity and get to be both a, you know, both someone's partner and a mother and a community, you know, community activist and also a, you know, a professional person. I feel like sometimes all of these platforms just want us to talk about our professional work and it's nice to be able to show up with all of my identities, Aaron. So gratitude to you. Mm. Thank you so much for saying that because that's exactly what I want on this podcast. And it's it's hard so for a lot of people. I will not lie. Like some people are just like, wait, what? You want me to talk about myself and my feelings? And I'm like, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> I do. And they're just like, yeah, <laughs> all right. And, they, and then they come along for the ride. And it's, um, it, of course, it always turns out beautifully, but they're just, um, there is a weariness sometimes when people step their foot in, into it. So Aww. what does it mean to you to give a damn? Will be my last question. I'm going to say a couple things. Mm. So 
I think it means constant self-assessment and self-awareness of your of how you are moving through the world. I think if you really give a damn, you're always working on internally what's going on for you and how it's manifesting externally in the in the circles of of people that you touch and interact with. I also think that it means, you know, to go back, it means asking the hard questions. Um, for years, I was the person who like sort of half raised their hand in the back of the room, hoping that they wouldn't have enough time to get to me <laughs> to ask my question. And um, and now I think it's like, you know, I think it's asking those. I think I think when you give a damn, you ask those difficult questions or you at least let people know that, like, this is something we should address, um, even if to my earlier story, it doesn't get addressed for a decade, yeah. you know, Um and I think, you know, I think the last thing it means to give a damn is to like, like, I, I care so much about enjoying my time mm. here earthside. I was an unplanned pregnancy to a, a teen mother and um, always sort of feel like I'm not supposed to be here because mm. I wasn't born into like the traditional circumstances. So a lot of my undoing of my own wounding over my life has been like proving that I'm supposed to be here. And now I think I've made this pivot to like, instead of proving my worth and that I'm supposed to be here to just freaking enjoying mm. it. <laughs> like I am just, so to me, like, I think when you really give a damn, you create a full whole life that every day you get excited to wake up and walk into. And I think the people who do that are also the people like we discussed earlier that are just unapologetic yeah. about what their community needs to thrive and be well and feel that joy. So I'm on that train and I hope that folks, you know, reach out um, to me. I am very accessible, as Aaron mm -hmm. knows, um, to learn more about our practice and everything. But um, I'm also just here as a human if there's other working parents listening or entrepreneurs who are trying to figure it out. Um, so, yeah. So that's what it means to me. And, yeah, just so much gratitude to you, Aaron. I love that you have this podcast mm -hmm. and space. So fun today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. It's just it's such an absolute treat to be able to have this conversation with you and to spend the time together. And oh, my goodness. Thank you. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com.